Welcome to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast, a series of honest conversations about opportunities, challenges, and joy in ministry today. These episodes are inspired by interactions with ministry leaders from across the country as they explore possibilities, learn from broad perspectives, take risks, and cultivate candid discussions that generate disruptive creativity. Hi, this is Adam Borman. You're joining us for part two of a conversation, Leaving Pharaoh's House, Truth-Telling Whiteness and Justice in the Church, with my friends Amy Star Redwine, Susan Rogers, and Shel Ferris. One of the topics that came up in our cohort was the idea of Christian unity. You know, what do we make of that? Because I think, and certainly in a church like mine, like we're sort of the classic, uh, when I was... um, interviewing for this role, the the people at the church on the pastor nominating committee described it very proudly as a purple church. You know, we've got people from across the political and ideological spectrum, and we're really proud of that, you know, that we can hold together. And it was something that, you know, I would say attracted me. I, I so believe that the church has to be a place where people who have different opinions about certain things can come together and find a common purpose and a and a shared identity as Jesus disciples but sometimes i think this idea of unity can pull us down and hold us back and so i'd love to hear chell and susan and adam like what you're thinking about that right now i can tell you after the latest election season in virginia i'm struggling with that a little bit or a lot no i do agree with you Amy, that we spend a lot of time trying to maintain a peace, but it becomes the kind of peace that's more of a facade than actual like peace, which is really about mending what's broken. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like in an effort to maintain the appearance of unity, we don't really deal with some of the deep pain that has been caused by some of the myths that we're talking about and some of the narratives that we're talking about because we fear conflict so much and we don't want to make anyone uncomfortable or alienate anyone. And so we spend a lot of time maintaining the appearance of peace and unity when actually we're just sort of covering over some of the deep seated issues. Um, I mean, kind of thinking about this in terms of just how we do that in so many areas. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, churches I've been a part of where there's an abrupt staff departure. You know, we just don't know how to grieve together and talk about the really hard, painful stuff. We sort of want to, oh, we got to carry on. We got to keep the machine running. And so if we take time to really deal with this, we might lose people. We might lose money. We might. So that becomes the priority versus actually doing the long-term healing work, which is slow and is painful. And so, yeah, I think you're right. We have a preference toward maintaining the status quo versus actually doing this hard healing work. I do agree that unity is one of the key theological concepts at stake in all of this, because in the context I've either been in or the context that I've encountered working with so many pastors, that seems to be the battering ram that gets used, which is, well, we just want to stay unified. We need to be a a unified people. Mm -hmm. And I think the way to think about that is not to say, well, no, we don't. You know, it's not just to quote Jesus when he says, I bring not peace, but a sword. Maybe that's one way to do it. But it's also to think, well, what do we really mean by unity? And at what level are we talking about unity? This also goes back to what we were saying earlier about helping people go deeper in their own faith formation to ask the questions about, well, what narratives and what theological concepts and what modes of discipleship are really unifying us? 
it really, to me, puts a big question mark next to what we mean by unity, not whether or not there should be unity mm-hmm. at all. And uh, I think, as Amy mentioned earlier, this came up a lot in our cohort, but continues to come up in these conversations that we continue. Is It's not just a matter of should we have unity or not, it's a matter of how do we help followers of Jesus think much more deeply about what it means to be a unified people, to be one people. I say that with full awareness that that's really hard work. It's like Norezma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands, which to me is really important for this because it says, well, you need to help people dig deeper to understand where they're coming from and where they might find points of intersection with things like trauma or narrative identities that intersect with people that we don't see as clearly. I'm preaching on Amos this week, and there's the part where God says through Amos, I hate your worship and I abhor your <laughs> festivals. Or, and it's that idea of what are we doing and, and what are we not doing? And then later in Amos, it's uh, let justice roll down like a mighty water and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. And so it's like justice is this wave of water, this torrent. Mm -hmm. And then righteousness is that ever flowing stream that is always there, always supplying the daily drink. And so I'm like, what is that calling us? And then also it's like change theory. Okay, how do you do change in a way that works? Bring all of those things together in a functional way, in a system that is a congregation. Yeah, how do you do those things together? And in some ways, I feel like this task would be easier if we could just start it all over from scratch. (laughs) We've been having some conversations here about our building and kind of what's working about it and what's really not working about it. And our leadership in these conversations, we've been having some small group conversations about that. And I heard someone say the other day, can we just tear it down and start over? And, you know, that was like scandalizing to some people, but I get it. It becomes such a bigger task when you're trying to mend and repair or renovate or dismantle one part of the space and recreate it in a way that is true to the whole. I mean, I think maybe that metaphor of like a construction project of an existing building is maybe a good one, because it's going to be that hard. Over the last months, I have thought a number of times, man, I would have done things differently. And just in listening to you, Amy, it kind of dawned on me, well, that means that I've learned a lot or we've learned a lot. And so that's a hopeful thing too, (laughs) that we can continue. We're learning and we didn't do it right. But I mean, why would we have expected from ourselves that we would? Mm -hmm. This is messy. This is hard. And God, that sounds like Jesus sort of work. (laughs) Uh, I think that's such a good point. I feel like for so long, we've had this idea that going back to what you said earlier about what is Christianity, that to be Christian is to get it right, and that we are not so much learners, which is really what discipleship is. It's people learning the way of Jesus, always and ever only learners. It's all we're going to be. We're never going to master this, but we keep trying. And that's what I think flattens the hierarchy is that even those of us who are identified as pastors who have chosen this or been called into this vocation are still only and ever always learners. And I feel like so often we have we come into our churches and our discipleship with this idea that we're going to arrive and that if we haven't, we're kind of embarrassed about it. Like, oh gosh, I still haven't learned that or I still haven't figured out or 
are you saying I'm racist? It's like, yeah, we all are. Like we have inherited this and we're a part of it. And it's just ingrained in so much of how we are in this country, how we live that, yeah. And we're trying to learn how to not be like, mm-hmm. that's, that's what we're here to do. It's that hard and that simple. <laughs> it really is hard. And I think one of the reasons it's so hard is because of how highly contextual that work has to be, you know, talking to you three is really interesting because you three are in such vastly different contexts. And one of the more important learnings is what's in common and what's not to your point, Susan, about, you know, what structural and systemic problems have we inherited? Well, once you push that conversation, you realize that, well, now all of a sudden I've got to create 10 on-ramps in my congregation for dealing with this if I'm serious about being pragmatic. Because some folks are going to hear you say that and say, absolutely, and let's deal with it right now. And other folks are going to say, I don't really understand what you're saying at all. And in fact, I'm offended by it, and I'm going to need a different entry point on this. And to me, that was one of the biggest learnings or most significant learnings of our cohort was that you really do have to create multiple entry points and they have to be willing to pivot quickly. And it's incredibly contextual, tailored work that this requires. And I think that's one reason why it's so important that we not position racial justice work, social justice work as a program of the church, but yet find ways to weave it into every facet of our Mm -hmm. life together. Mm -hmm. It was a I think recent realization of mine that like the work of racial justice and some of the conversations that we're having in our small group that have formed that spiritual formation. Like I am being rearranged by these conversations. I'm seeing differently. I'm awakening to seeing my neighbors differently and myself differently and understanding the gospel in a new way. And so I feel like instead of isolating it as, okay, now we're going to also do this work it's really important that we weave it in every opportunity we have. And one of, to me, one of the most powerful ways is through storytelling. I think someone already said that any opportunities that we can find within our Sunday worship services, our whatever your, I don't know what your programming looks like, but where we can hear stories of people who are learning and what they're learning and how they're learning it and how they're seeing differently. And then stories from our neighbors who are learning or who are willing to share their journeys toward racial justice. I so agree that of the importance of those stories, Susan, and I love how you name that this can't be another program of the church, like in a silo, that it has to be integrated. And I will say that's a work in progress in my particular context, because I think initially, it was sort of this thing that everyone was invited into, but not everyone was going to participate in. One of the things that has been really powerful for me is to try to learn the stories not just of people who are doing this work now, but people who were doing it 50, 75, 100 years ago. To me, we need those examples because those are the people who were having to take some of the risks that we can relate to and experience some of the discomfort that we can relate to in a different way than any of us are going to ever be able to relate to MLK or Rosa Parks. You know, where we stand is not where they stood or where people of color trying to do this work are standing now. So those are some of the stories I'm hoping we can start to recover and tell more. Yeah, I I think that's right. And that, to me, brings two things to mind. One is um, how important it is to hold up models that people can connect to more immediately. Um, But the other thing, too, is that that also reveals to me that 
so many of us and so many folks in our churches are just totally unaware of spaces they can occupy to be more formed by those narratives. So it's interesting how we don't put ourselves in those spaces where those narratives become a part of us. Some of the folks in our churches, they need to go attend a protest or a rally that makes them uncomfortable just to be there and be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Some of them need to connect in really physical, experiential ways to those ongoing narratives and also have models that are, I think, in a lot of times, maybe too close for comfort. I mean, both of those things need to be happening simultaneously and not just one more book study, uh, which I know um, can be beneficial, but that's just one of the many on-ramps. These other on-ramps need to be experiential, participatory, they need to be uncomfortable, and they need to be reflected upon and then repeated again in order to do both of those two streams at the same time. One of the things I've been trying to do is like another on-ramp is in sermons using as like voices of wisdom, people are of color. And so they're not talking about race, they're talking about faith. And then I don't point it out that they're black or Asian or whatever, but their picture is on the screen. And this is a person who we're learning from, who we're looking up to. Another on-ramp. Mm-hmm. Another one I think of is our youth are leading on this. Mm-hmm. And so like even in the Christmas play, we were working that out a month or two ago. And some of the confirmation kids were like, wait a minute, where are the voices of women in this? And so they're lifting that up. And like last year, as we were doing stuff in confirmation, one of the girls is like, who's blonde, white. She's like, all my friends look like me. Can we create a a space? And so we were able to create a space with some help with another neighboring congregation that's mostly African-American, where five of our kids and 10 of their kids sat down and talked for an hour and a half over three months. And then they told our congregation about it. That's so great, Chell. And I just want to agree that I think the young people have so much to teach us and have been leaders in this space. You made me think about our confirmation class last year who wrote uh, not exactly traditional statements of faith, but sort of who were asked to write at the end of confirmation about their understanding of God. And they were so beautiful and expansive and spoke to things like how they really understand God to be completely beyond race and gender and any of these other identifiers that we use to separate ourselves from one another. And my gosh, it was so refreshing and inspiring. And, you know, at the end of the day, they will have a huge part in helping this reconstruction project that we've been talking about. It's such a privilege of mine to be part of this ongoing conversation. These are people, colleagues that have remained in conversation over the last several months and will continue to do so. We do plan to have another Leaving Pharaoh's House cohort sometime in the next few months. For those who are interested in learning more about that, uh, you can, of course, reach out to our ministry collaborative staff. Amy, Susan, Chell, thanks again so much for being here, and thanks for the important work that you're doing. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thanks Thanks all. Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast, a project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation. The Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities. Our producer is Marthane Sanders. To find out more about our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations and communities, visit our website at www.ministrycollaborative.org.